This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Russ Ramsey on pursuing perfection. Russ Ramsey is the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Cool Springs outside Nashville, Tennessee. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2022 General Assembly. Let's listen as Russ Ramsey shares insights into our hunger for glory. Human form. And above painting and etching and drawing. And every other technique was sculpture. Human form, sculpture. And above clay and above bronze and any other material where you could add to it in the event of a mistake was the single unforgiving solid block of stone those were his convictions the human form sculpture solid stone and there in the courtyard of the duomo laying on its side for over 40 years lay the giant calling for the convergence of all three of his convictions, a sculpture of the human form from a single slab of stone. David is perhaps the most ubiquitous character in the Old Testament. Everybody knows at least part of his story. Before David had risen to any level of fame, his brothers went off to war. And Israel's king Saul and his army were dug in at the valley of Elah in the hill country of Judah. And across the valley were the Philistines, clanking their spears and shields in the hopes that they might bait Saul's army into allowing their anger to draw them out into what would then become the killing fields. And every day... The Philistine's strongest, biggest warrior would call out across the valley for someone, anyone, to step forward to fight him. And his name was Goliath of Gath, and he stood nine feet, nine inches tall. And he was covered head to toe in bronze armor, his mail coat looking like the scales of a serpent glistening in the sun. And he carried a javelin on his back and a spear in one hand and a sword in the other. And he was a monolith of a figure. He was as impenetrable as stone. And every day, Goliath would call out, Why have you come out for battle if you won't fight? Let's settle this man to man. 
Send over the best you've got. Let him come down to me. And winner takes all. And Saul and his leaders could not produce one single soldier who stood a chance against the giant. He was the perfect warrior. And one day, David came to the valley to bring supplies to his brothers, and he saw the giant step into the sun, shimmering bronze, and Goliath resumed his taunt, and he said, Who will you send to fight me? Anyone? No one? Cowards? And David watched as his countrymen shrunk back in fear, and he could tell that they had no fight in them. And this offended him, because they were not just any army. They were the heirs of the Exodus. They were the tribes who defeated Canaan and Edom and Moab. Egypt was swallowed in the sea behind them. Jericho fell before them. They were not just some random clan. They were God's chosen people. And now they would shrink in fear over the taunts of one man. David said to Saul, listen, you don't need to keep doing this. I'll go fight him. And Saul was incredulous. You, you can't fight him. You're just a boy. And David said, listen, king, I know how to handle this. When I was watching over my father's herd, a lion came to snatch one away. And I went after him and I struck him and I delivered the lamb from his mouth. And when that lion turned on me, I grabbed him by his beard and I struck him again and I killed him with my knife. That giant across the valley is going to end up just like that lion. He's defied the armies of the living God and the Lord will deliver him to me. And Saul recognized that the boy meant every word. And without a better plan, he said, well, go then and may the Lord be with you. And then Saul dug out his best armor and weaponry and began to dress David in his coat of mail. And then the king handed David his sword. And David said, this, this is not how I intend to fight. And so he put it all down. And he picked up his staff and he gathered five smooth stones from the brook of Elah and he put them in his pouch and he grabbed his sling and he walked to face the giant. And Goliath regarded the boy for a moment and he laughed and he said, really? Do you really think you can chase me away with a stick and some rocks like I'm a dog? Come to me if you must, but know this, I will feed your flesh to the birds and the jackals if you do. And David said, you come at me with your javelin and your spear and your sword, but I come in the name of the Lord you have defied. And before this day is over, the same God will deliver you over to me and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And you and your entire army will perish and every one of you will meet the fate of the birds and the jackals. And then all the earth will know. That there is a God over Israel who doesn't need a giant sword or spear because this battle belongs to him. And so Goliath stood to his feet and began to make his way toward David. Freeze that frame. That moment. That moment. That's the moment that Michelangelo captured. David staring down his approaching foe. And the story is all there. It's in his posture. It's in his hands. It's in his sling. It's in his vulnerability. It's in his eyes. The sling and the stone signal to us that David is looking at Goliath, who is about to die. 
And the look in David's eye tells us he has no doubt. The marble looks soft and smooth like flesh. The shepherd is at the same time vulnerable in his nakedness and imposing in his size, standing over 13 feet tall. David is tense, angry, ready to move. Michelangelo catches him at the peak of his focus. The warrior David is alert, but calm. He is equipped, but patient. He is daring, but confident. He stands in a way that conveys motion, as though he has just shifted his weight or taken a step. The posture conveys a sense of life. David stands naked and defenseless. This is a detail not in scripture, but included by Michelangelo to heighten for the viewers just how vulnerable David was against this unseen foe. And though he is naked, he is anything but weak. The determination on his face and the weapon in his hand convey not only strength, but confidence that the victory is his. The confidence that this was not a battle against flesh and blood. His right hand holds the grip of the sling. His left hand holds the pocket of the sling. The sling is draped across his back, hidden from Goliath, emphasizing that David's victory was one of cleverness, not brute strength. His approach was sophisticated. It was elegant. Goliath's sword and javelin and muscles and spear all depended on close to mid-range combat. But David's sling is a long-range weapon. A skilled slinger could take down an opponent armed with swords and spears and javelins without ever coming into the reach of his enemy's weapons. And what's more, David believed that God himself would guide the stone. Goliath would never even touch him. And so the story is perfect. You have a perfect enemy. You have a perfect youth. You have the perfect cast of a lethal stone. You have a perfect ending. And Michelangelo fit it all into a perfect statue of a perfect hero. But none of us are perfect. We work with what we're given. No one is perfect, not in this life. We live in a world of limits. And we all run up against them. If you're like me, you wish this wasn't the case. And this whole business of having limits can be hard to accept. But limits are a fact of life. In fact, they're part of God's design. And one of the beauties I see in that part of God's design is that our limits and our need for others end up producing results in the end that are beautiful and helpful and unexpected results that none of us on our own would have known to create or even thought to create. The story behind how Michelangelo's David came to be helps us see this. This statue began with limits. Michelangelo's statue would be limited to what the stone itself could accommodate. When he began, he had to adapt to the work of two prior sculptors whose creative choices and also technical mistakes would determine 
at least to some degree, how David would have to stand. And that stance would affect everything about the end result, not only the composition of the piece, but also its structural integrity. Michelangelo was given a block of marbles that others had a hand in shaping. Is that not a metaphor for life? Is that not a metaphor for ministry? That Michelangelo was given a block of marble that others had a hand in shaping. We work with what we're given. We live in a world of limits. How different would Michelangelo's David have been if he began with a virgin stone? What artistic choices would he have made otherwise? Would that sculpture be as beloved as the one we've been given? Michelangelo chipped away at the stone set before him. And he had to accommodate the vision of other sculptors. He had to accommodate the dimensions that were handed down by the stonemasons who first hewed the giant from the Tuscan Alps. He had to accommodate the written word of scripture because the story of David was not his to invent. And all of these constraints played a role in drawing from the stone the shepherd that he had read about and imagined his entire life. And some of those choices had already been made for him. And had they not been, we would not have Michelangelo's David. We would have something else. But that's not what happened. And so we have David. I can't think of a single thing in my life that doesn't bear the touch of others. And you can't either. Not a single thing. And of course we wish that some of those chisel marks never happened. The ones that draw from us a plea for mercy. The ones that kindle in us a hunger for the renewal of all things. A desire for a reckoning against evil. But other marks have been necessary to give us eyes to behold truth and beauty and goodness that we would not have otherwise seen. Living with limits is one of the ways that we enter into beauty we would not have otherwise seen. Good work we would not have otherwise chosen. Relationships we would not have otherwise treasured. It's one of the beauties of the church. The Lord picks your friends for you. For the Christian, accepting our limits is one of the ways we are shaped to fit together as living stones into the body of Christ. And that means as much as our strengths are a gift to the church, so are our limitations. There are cracks in David's ankles. For over 500 years, thousands of pounds of marble have been pushing down on David's legs. And yet he stands. Through centuries of sun and rain and tremors of thunder and more than a few attacks by vandals, David stands. But David stands on a bit of a tilt, adding torque to the pressure his weight puts on those tiny fissures. And in almost immeasurable ways, those little fractures are growing. And they're working their way up his leg. 
And this deterioration of the stone cannot be reversed. Florence, where David stands today, still, sits near active fault lines, which send trimmers through the city. As the city develops, construction equipment shakes the earth. As the daily queues of tourists form outside of the academy, the footsteps of a million pilgrims per year from all over the world create almost immeasurable, but still near constant measurable seismic activity around the statue's base. One day, David will fall. In all likelihood, he will ironically be taken down by a stone. Not by the force of a stone flung at him like Goliath, but by the limitation of the very stone from which he is carved. He will collapse under his own weight because of his own flaws. One of the many fractures will cause a catastrophic failure and the compressive integrity of the marble and the weight of his upper body will begin to shift and pressure and torque and momentum will finish the job. In his article, David's Ankles, How Imperfections Could Bring Down the World's Most Perfect Statue, the New York Times columnist Sam Anderson imagined the scene. He says, the first thing to hit the floor is his bent left elbow. The arm that holds the heroic sling and it bursts along the lines of its previous breaks, old scars left over from an incident in the 16th century involving an unruly mob and a bench. Then the rest of the marble will meet the floor, and the physics from there will be fast and simple. Force, resistance, brittleness of calcite crystals, the shearing of microscopic grains along the axis which they align, Michelangelo's David will explode. This is the world we live in. This world we live in, which is wasting away, is utterly indifferent to preserving David. In fact, it is utterly indifferent to preserving any of the finest art that this world and its inhabitants can produce. The stone that the quarrymen hewed from the mountain was filled with all kinds of imperfections. Before the first tap of the first sculptor's hammer and chisel. Though the marble was capable of accommodating the physical toll of the thousands of taps from the sculptor's tools, and even though it has managed to stand for over 500 years, supporting its own weight in all kinds of conditions, David is made of a material that is perishing. And this reality was present from the beginning. Still, we flock to see him. Standing there in all of his glory, the most perfect work of art ever achieved by any one of us. I came across a detail in my research that I can't seem to shake. And that is there is a gloss on David, on his exterior. And that gloss is in part human skin. How can that be? Well, for 500 years, the patina covering David's body has been composed of a combination of Florentine dust and the detritus of 100 million tourists 
coughing and shuffling before him, shedding their skin to give him his. We have added to Michelangelo's David, polishing him smooth by our presence. We who bear the image of God have taken this man of stone and we have given him a dusting of flesh. And we save our vacation days and we plan our itineraries and we make our way across oceans and over mountains and through cities and down long stretches of highway that span the countryside to take our place in line to catch a glimpse of the deeper glory that we know we were made for. We go to the National Gallery in London and we go to the Met in New York City and we go to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam and we go to the Academy in Florence and we go to the Grand Canyon of the American West and we go to the Giant's Causeway of Northern Ireland and the forests of East Asia and the islands of the South Pacific and we go to a pizza place in Brooklyn and we go to a pub in Oxford, and we go to a vineyard in the Sonoma Valley, and we go to a cafe in Paris. Why? All to join we who are perishing to the eternal. All to get closer to glory. Thank you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces. Gifts and Graces.